turn to the book of Philippians as we continue our series through Philippians. I was thankful for Pastor Ruff and filling in last week as he preached to us. It was a gift to hear from him. But this morning we're going to be back in Philippians, back in our series through the, Paul's letter to this, this church at Philippi. And this morning we're going to be looking at verse, verse 17 through, uh, through the end of chapter 3. And we're going to look at also verse 1 of chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, in the row in front of you. We also have a couple of scripture journals that you could take home that are out in the narthex table to the left as you go out the door. Well, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We do that out of respect for God, who is the speaker. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my crown, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Had somebody reading along with me, I think. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this truth, this glorious truth, that we're only here a short time. And we await a Savior to return, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform this entire world, including ourselves. Open our eyes to that truth this morning and encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As many of you know, in January of 2022, it's the year our family called our crisis year. There's a lot going on that year. We had a family emergency in January 2022. A car collided into our house, creating a lot of damage. We were fine. The house was not. So we had to move out for about, about six months um, as repairs were being made. And... Um, you know, after bouncing around a few different places, before we found our rental, we found a place to stay here in town. And, um, and that was good. We found a rental house. And then once we found that rental house, the whole move-in process started. We had to pack up our entire house, clear out the entire house, and then move it into this rental and some into storage. And in the process of getting settled, my wife, Hannah, and I, we had a slight disagreement. As you can imagine, there was a lot of stress, right? A lot of stress in the family. Moving is not easy. We had a slight disagreement. We, some of the times we call it intense fellowship, right? And so this disagreement was about this. You know, I believed that since our stay in the rental was going to be brief, I hoped, and fleeting, there was really no need to make it feel like home, right? We didn't need to roll out all the, the carpets and hang the pictures and unpack every little box. 
my reasoning made sense to me. Why go through all the effort and make something feel like home that wasn't our home if we were only going to be there a short time? And if you're a woman here, you're probably like, yeah, typical guy. (laughs) Typical guy. Doesn't want to make the place uh, like home. Well, let me just say my wife had a different take on things. While my thinking was, we may only be here six months or so. Now, remember, we didn't know how long we were going to be there, but I knew it was going to be slightly, you know, pretty short. But her thinking was, we could be here six months, you know, or longer. Her point was, that's not so short of a stay, Blake. Now, truth be told, each of us made valid arguments in the midst of that disagreement. But really, at the end of the day, I'll admit it, I was really just being lazy part. I was tired. I didn't want to unpack every single box in, that we had. I, I, was, I was exhausted. And so my reasons were, pra- were partly selfish. And, but in the end, I agreed that we should make some effort to feel at home, even if it wasn't our true home, right? even if it wasn't our ultimate home. But the debate that we had revealed an important truth. When you go somewhere temporarily, there are things that make sense to do and there's things that really don't make sense to do, right? It does make sense to put up pictures. It does make sense to, to put out your nice carpet, uh, your rugs. But it would not make sense, for instance, for us to have a contractor to come in and to renovate the bathroom or to put in radiant heating on the tiles, right? To do all these bells and whistles because we were not going to be there that long. You see, we were sojourners in the rental house. We were just passing through. Our stay was temporary. And that's the point Paul is trying to drive home to these Christians at Philippi. They await, and we await, a greater destination. He's saying to them, you guys are citizens of a lasting kingdom. A lasting kingdom, more lasting than the Roman Empire that they were a part of. In the current world we live in, is not lasting. As the Apostle John said in 1 John, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, what is a sojourner? We see that word all the time in, in the Old Testament, especially, that Israel, God calls them sojourners. Well, what is a sojourner? Well, it's defined as a traveler, uh, a foreigner, a stranger. And a sojourner knows that this place is not the final destination, that this place does not deserve our ultimate allegiance, and that therefore this place is not our ultimate hope. And so Paul's text begs the question, what are you looking for? What are you longing for beyond your current experience and your current circumstance? You see, in our rental house, as we stayed there, we began to long for our home. It was exciting to be in a new place for a while. The kids liked it. We liked it. It was different. But we began to long for our house, our home. The creaking of the wood floors, the distinct smell of your house, the joy and the comfort of your furniture, your bed, your place. A sojourner longs for home. So do you know where your home is today? And so, friends, here's the operating principle of this text. What you long for, you will live for. What you long for, you'll live for. 
That's the logic of Paul's thinking here. It's the essence of the sojourner's faith. So what's our ultimate destination? What's our ultimate allegiance? And what is our ultimate hope for the Christian? Well, I'm glad you asked. Those are exactly the questions Paul will help us answer this morning. Here's the main point. Our faith is a sojourner's faith, one that longs for our ultimate destination, longs for our ultimate allegiance, and longs for our ultimate hope. That's that's my three points this morning. Let's look at that first idea, our ultimate destination. Our ultimate destination. Begin at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What Paul is saying is that you will have examples in the church, in your life, that will point you to your ultimate destination. Right? You will have examples, and you will then be an example. He says about himself, join in imitating me. Paul says, look at me. Look at my life. Look how I'm living in the midst of my chains for my ultimate destination. Paul saw himself as an example to follow as he followed Christ. He says that exact word in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's not just saying, look at me, look how awesome I am. He's saying, no, look how I'm following Christ so that you can better follow Jesus too. He adds to that in verse 17, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's saying, look at these leaders of the church. You have an example to long for your destination through their example. The author of Hebrews says something similar in Hebrews 13, 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. That is one of the crucial roles of a a leader in the church, of elders and pastors and uh, women's leaders and Bible study leaders and small group leaders. You're You're an imitator of Christ, not just in what you teach, but in how you walk how you live your life. And so what's absolutely necessary is that we need examples of the faith to look up to. You need examples to look up to. Dennis Johnson says, God is calling you here to be intentional and deliberate. Find folks in whom Jesus' love and purity shine and fix your gaze on how they live out their gratitude for his grace and the way they treat others. Respond to setbacks and sorrows and aim for God's glory in every situation. You see, sometimes in my life and and in your life, you're going to have to be intentional to seek those examples out and to learn from them and to be mentored. You can't just sit back in your Christian life and expect people to come to you to mentor you. You have to go out. You have to seek them. You have to ask, hey, can can I sit with you? Can I get grab coffee with you? Can I learn from you? Can I pray with you? Can I ask you hard questions? Sometimes you have to be intentional and deliberate to seek them out. On the flip side of that, we must be examples to others. We must be mentors. We must disciple people. I'm going to say something important here, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, but let me say it first. The faith is more often caught rather than taught. Okay, let me explain. Don't get me wrong. I'm an absolute believer in teaching. I'm teaching right now. We need teachers. We need pastors. We need to teach in Sunday school. 
We need to teach in Bible studies. But if we're talking about passing the, the faith on from one generation to the next, you see, children and others and young people, we often learn with our eyes more than we learn, and our ears more than we learn with our brains. We have to learn doctrine. We have to learn the Bible. But you learn how to be a Christian by watching other people around you live their lives and go through ups and downs. As we watch how an older, more experienced believer stands firm in the faith in the midst of disappointment, discouragement, darkness, decline, and eventual death. You might be asking yourself, what do I have to offer the next generation? Right? You might think, look at your own life, say, what, what do I really have to offer? Well, friends, you offer more than you realize. You offer more than you realize, even if it's just your presence in this room, faithfully attending church services, even if it's your sadness, even if it's your tears, if done in faith, that is an example to other people. Or maybe it's your stronger days, it's your testimony, or it's your contagious joy that you have in the Lord. You have something to offer even just by showing up and being a Christian in public with other people to see. We have to do that. God has uniquely gifted you. He's uniquely crafted you through your challenges, through your struggles, through your sadnesses, to be a gift to other people, to give that gift away to other people who need to see the faith lived out after decades and decades of living that faith. I've been encouraged by, by you in this room, by the things you've gone through, the, the suffering you've gone through, and the faith you've retained and, and, and clinging to Jesus. That has to be seen. That has to be, you have to do life with people like that, especially for children. Uh, there are things you'll learn in church by being around other believers that you'll never learn from a five-minute YouTube video clip. Right? We're not just meant to be getting content. We're to be living in the midst of community with fellow believers who are examples. So what examples are you going to, and how can you be an example to others? Now what Paul does here, though, he contrasts the good examples with ungodly examples in the next verse. Ungodly examples of this present world hope. He says in verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He's talking about people in the world who have their hopes set on this life only. Paul in 2 Timothy talked about a man, and we don't know much about him, but this is how he described him. His name is Demas. He says, for Demas, this is 2 Timothy 4, Demas, who is in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He was lamenting over the fact that this brother in Christ, who now is in love with the world, has deserted Paul. That is how the banner over people who are allured by this world. We're in love with the world. And what does Paul say is their ultimate end? He says their end is destruction, right? Where they were going to end up ultimately is in destruction. You see, friends, the love of the world, 
leads to destruction and condemnation. It leads to emptiness, sadness, ruin, and loss. And look also how we, you know, there's been some debate. Who are, who are the people he's talking about here? Is it these law-keeping, like Judaizers, who are trying to add to the gospel? Or is it more people who just live however they want in this Greek culture in Philippi? I think it's the latter. It's, it's the people who live however they want. He says their God is their bellies. It's interesting that phrase, bellies, that word for belly can be used for the stomach, but also the womb. So it could be that Paul's referring both to this dietary overindulgence of eating and eating like gluttony, but also sexual overindulgence. There were sexual cults. There was the cult of Dionysus in Philippi, right, where it was just more and more and more. Their God is their bellies. Doesn't sound too different from our world, does it? Do what feels right. Live how you want. Your truth is real truth. Friends, we're to reject a world that tells us that our bodily urges and our bodily desires and appetites are the most important thing about us. That is what's being preached today. And that those urges and those appetites and those desires cannot be denied, should not be denied. It immediately made me think of, in Genesis, Esau. Right? And selling his birthright, he comes to, to Jacob, and, he, and Jacob, he says, hey, if, I'll, I'll give you this pot of stew. I see you're, you're starving. If you give me your birthright, right, that he was the firstborn, he got all the blessing, and he gave that up just for this pot of stew because he would not deny his bodily appetites. See, this line of thinking that you have to please yourself, whatever your body, whatever you want, is, is what you should please. This line of thinking runs in stark contradiction to the gospel. Because our Savior denied himself. Our Savior denied himself all those earthly benefits and comforts and died on a cross for us, for those who he came to save. Therefore, in thankfulness, we're to deny ourselves, aren't we? Because he sacrificed for us. He sacrificed for the ones he loved. Paul says they glory in their shame and they set their minds on the earth and they walk as enemies of the cross. See, if you live this way, if you live this way believing only in the, the worldly desires, only what I want matters, you will walk as an enemy of the cross. I went to James Madison University in, in uh, 2007, 2006, and um, JMU, is a, it's, a big, it's a big school, it's even bigger now, um, but it has a fairly big Christian community. But it also has a very, fairly big party scene. And um, as I was entering my freshman year, I was tugged between both, both worlds. It was really easy to live a double life in college. It was easy to go to campus ministry, large group meetings on Thursday night, your Bible study you know, on Tuesday night, but then also go out and, and go to the parties all throughout the city. And thankfully, I felt a major conviction from God's word that my walk, the way I was living, was in contradiction to the cross of Christ. I couldn't couldn't declare and proclaim to be a believer and yet live this way. I had to choose. I had to choose. And so Paul doesn't mince words. At that time, I had become an enemy of the cross. 
And I remember going through, after I'd been called and steered in the right direction by God's conviction, I remember every freshman group coming through and always being a few people who were living that double life. Who were living that double life. And it makes me sad. And it made Paul sad. Look, look what he says in verse 18. And now I tell you, even with tears, that there are some that walk as enemies of the cross. We are to mourn the decisions of the people who live and long for a world that's passing away. Doesn't that make you sad to see that? Maybe it makes you sad because you think of the way you used to live. That you were, you were living for something that wasn't going to satisfy. It should make us sad. It should give us tears when we see people running after things we know are going to let them down. And Paul had tears as well. Because it will never satisfy them. Well, that's our first point, ultimate destination. Our second is is that we're living, our, our sojourning faith lives for an ultimate allegiance. And here Paul says, Our citizenship, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizen. What's interesting is in Philippi, they had uh, been occupied and became Roman territory. So that if you lived in Philippi, you would have received Roman citizenship because of the Roman Empire. And if you maybe weren't born in Rome or in the Roman Empire, you received citizenship of a land that was far away, maybe a land you'd never seen before. And so what Paul is is telling them is is that they have a heavenly citizenship of a a land that they've never seen with their eyes. They would have have understood that so well because they were Roman citizens of a land they'd never been to. They had this dual citizenship. And what Paul is saying about every Christian is that You belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. And that as we live in this country, we have dual citizenship. But we do have a primary citizenship. And it's our eternal one. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. As he was being arrested and betrayed. You know, it's an interesting idea. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about what, what, what the author says in Hebrews 11. He starts that chapter off by saying, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So that last part's important. What is seen is, was not made by what's visible. So what the author is saying is that the visible world What we see, the creation, is not the ultimate reality. There's something behind it. There's something greater. There's something more magnificent, more powerful. It's that spiritual realm. And he uses that language to then talk about all the people in the Old Testament who died in faith, who died looking forward to the promise, the promised land. And he talks mostly about Abraham and his faith, and then Sarah. And he says, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers, sojourners, and exiles on the earth. Hebrews eleven fourteen. for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
And if they'd been thinking about the land from which they'd come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. Do you see, he's talking about Abraham and Sarah's faith. And all the Old Testament saints, they had, they had a hope of a city to come, a, a, a country to come. He says that they desired a better country. And that's true for all God's people. God has a city, a homeland prepared for you. And that city defines you more than your current citizenship here on earth defines you. Now that has huge implications. It has huge implications societally, politically, and how we love our neighbors. Think about it. That means you have more in common with Christians of all types than someone who just, than, than, than common, you have more in common with a Christian who then disagrees with you, say, on social issues. You have more in common with that Christian than you do a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist who votes and agrees with you on every social political issue. You have more in common with that Christian. That, that ties you together. But even more importantly than that, is that while we're to care for our earthly nation, because you know, we're in, in the welfare of the United States of America, we're going to find our welfare. Right? Just like Jeremiah 29 says, when they were in exile. When we care for our country, that's a good thing. And while we are to work for a more just and equitable and righteous society, we do not put our ultimate hope in this society. We don't put our ultimate hope in the potential of the land in which we live. But also, we don't fall into complete despair when we see our nation decline morally, spiritually, financially, militarily. So we don't, we don't idolize where we live, but we also don't abandon our earthly city. And it's all rooted in the fact because we have a hope of an eternal city beyond this life. And it helps us actually to become good citizens. It helps us to engage well, to put, to put our minds at work, our skills at work. And I know many of you are involved in our communities around here, and that's great, and we need to keep that up. But as we do that, we remind people of our, earthly de- of our heavenly destination. And so how are we to live in our earthly citizenship? Well, the first thing we do is we wait for Jesus. Look what he says in verse 20. And from this heavenly citizenship, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the Savior going to do? He's going to transform our body. Isn't that good news? That our bodies are going to be transformed. Dennis Johnson says, that means no more muscle aches, no more broken bones, no more arthritis, memory loss, indigestion, stomach bugs, heart disease, cancer. Best of all, no more appetites bent in on themselves and guilty self-indulgence. Instead, we'll have a body wired to desire what our creator designed us for and what is he is pleased to give us, and that he is pleased to see us enjoy through and through, forever and ever. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And what's awesome is that we're a part, our body is going to be a part of the new creation. Look at verse 21. He links it to the power that he enables him to subject all things to himself. 
that he's going to recreate us and the world, that we'll inhabit a new world, a new heavens and new earth, in which everything is completely subject to Jesus, the last Adam. And so until then, we work in this world. We work in this world. We make it a home. We put out our carpet. We hang up our pictures. We, we, We make it better than where we left it. But not to redeem it, only God can redeem, but to do good and to rest, represent our king well. And you know what that'll do in our culture? When we represent our king well, we don't put our hope in this world, it'll allow us to faithfully dismantle the idols we see around us. It'll allow us to, to dismantle the idols our culture hopes in while providing the answer of Jesus, who is the answer to all the deepest felt needs of our culture. Right? When people put their hope in a president, in politics, what they're really hoping, what, they're really, what their felt need is, is they need Jesus. Right? When people put their hopes in anything in this world, what their heart is really wanting is Christ, the Savior. And that's our job, is to tell them that. Also, as we are in this earthly citizenship, as, as uh, citizens of this country, the United States of America, we are to submit to our country. Paul's very clear about that, and Peter's very clear about that, that we are to be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, 1 Peter 2, whether it's the emperor as supreme or governors. Um, And then he says at the bottom, concluding, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Some of you might be asking, does that mean we should pay taxes? Should we pay our taxes to the IRS? Yes. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. And to be even more clear, Paul said in Romans, For because of this you're to pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So yes, pay your taxes. They're coming up pretty soon. But, we do disobey government when government tells us to disobey God. That is where we differ. Because God is our hope, and he is our greatest allegiance, and so we please him. That leads me to my final point, our ultimate hope. The sojourner's, ha- the sojourner's faith has an ultimate hope. So he says, this Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject even all things to himself. And then chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What is the first part of Paul's hope? My brothers. Right? He engages with his brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. He says, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Brothers and sisters, our hope in Christ will be reflected in the love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you love Jesus, you will love your brothers and sisters. Look look what he calls them, my joy, my crown. And that is because this is a kingdom outpost. We, We are an outpost of the eternal kingdom. This little building, this small group is an outpost where we invite people 
to become members of the eternal kingdom of Christ. And so, what are our marching orders as well? So, so we're to engage and love the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our joy and crown. Then he says, stand firm, thus in the Lord. Make no mistake, the Christian hope isn't rooted in, in some faraway neverland that we're to just float off into and leave this world behind. No, the Christian hope is rooted in a person, in a Savior King who, who came here, who entered into our world, who, who came in humility to die for his people, and who promises to come again to right every wrong. And so as you think of what's required of you now in, in waiting for Jesus and standing firm for Jesus, you may be overcome by guilt, as sometimes I am. Because you know and I know how we've often failed to wait well, to serve well, and to long for Jesus. It's hard. Waiting is hard. And so the magnificence of the gospel is that Jesus' perfect obedience becomes yours. His perfect patience, his perfect waiting, his perfect record is given to us by faith, by us simply trusting in him which is the basis of our acceptance before God. It's nothing that we've ever done. It's the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That is our hope. He is our hope. And it covers all of our failures, all of our faithlessness. And you know, sometimes just waiting faithfully is the main thing God asks us to do in this life. And it's hard because what we're doing here, what we're waiting for, this new heavens and new earth, none of us has ever seen it. None of us has ever laid eyes upon God. None of us have looked upon the face of Jesus. So what, what I'm, sometimes I'm asking you to do is, it seems inconceivable. It seems hard. Because we're so trained to look at what we see and know and the evidence that we see before us. And so what do we do? Where do we go? We see God asks us to trust his word. God asks us to trust him because he's reliable. To trust him who said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he's trustworthy. And so we should long to see Jesus. I'm reminded in John 12, when word is spreading about Jesus and his ministry and, and, and says that there were some Greeks who came up to worship and feast. And these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew told Philip, and went and told Jesus. And they, they talked to Jesus. They, and I just love that they say that. We wish to see Jesus. You know, the older you get, doesn't your prayer life slowly simplify down to this one basic request? I wish to see Jesus. Isn't that what your prayer life basically becomes all about? I wish to see Jesus, who gave all he had to save me his wayward child. I wish to see Jesus who conquered my heart. My heart that's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Friends, as I, as I close, let me ask you these questions. Does the grave mark the boundary of your hopes and dreams? Does the grave mark the boundary? of your hopes and dreams? Are you living for this life only and hoping that it will be enough 
And so with tears like Paul, I tell you, it will not be. If that is your future, if, if that is your hope, then your future is bleak. But if Christ is your hope, your future is bright because it's beyond the grave. So I leave you with the same question I began this morning. What are you longing for? And whatever you long for, you will live for. And if you live for this world, you'll find the destination is destruction. If you live for the world to come, you'll be filled with the joy that Paul talks about again and again and again in Philippians And you'll find strength to wait. You'll find strength to be firm as you wait the appearance of your Savior King to bring you home. When I was in middle school, I remember this song. And I did not know that it was an old hymn because it was sung by one of the leading bands, Christian bands at the time. But I'll leave you with this. It's by Helen Lemel. And I think it's fitting as we think about what we're called to do. Turn your eyes. Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. For the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, will that hymn be true for us? That we would no longer look to this world for joy and happiness that we would no longer just gaze upon our sin and our sadnesses, but we would look upon the face of Jesus as we read about him in the word, as we lean upon his promises, as we cherish his words of hope. And may we long to see our citizenship fulfilled as we enter into that kingdom fully that has been secured and won for us through the blood of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.